Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome into episode 33 of the Five Reasons Podcast. Thank you for finding us. As always, you can download us on iTunes. You can also download us on Google Play. If you have Android, we're on Stitcher, CastBox, several other platforms. And when you're there, not only can you subscribe for free, but you can download any of our previous episodes. Did an episode earlier this week on the Hassan Whiteside situation with the Miami Heat. Also a two-parter with Heat play-by-play voice Eric Reed that you can find on there for our Heat Story series. I'm here, as always, Ethan Skull with Chris Whittingham. We have been bringing guests onto the program lately as well, and today we are pleased to be joined, I'm going to call him by his formal name first, by Vincent Goodwill of NBC Sports Chicago, previously covered the Detroit Pistons. He now covers the Chicago Bulls. Bulls fans are always real thrilled with his Detroit ties, and vice versa. Never gets in any trouble on Twitter about any of that. Vinny, thanks for joining us. No trouble at all, guys. Come on, Ethan. I'm I'm basketball Kardashian. Wherever I go, the team just automatically goes down the drain. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You're doing everything but dating Tristan Thompson right now. So that's uh, that's good stuff. Yeah, it's been a rough year for you. So one of the things we wanted to do here, we're going to go around the NBA. We're not going to force you to talk about the Bulls for Thank all you. five parts of this episode. Although we will start there because you have been subjected to some of the worst basketball that we've ever seen this year. When when, when the Bulls play against other teams that are tanking. And the Bulls are, uh, are unique even in tanking this year because uh, at times they've shut down various guys. They traded Miritich when he was leading them to too many wins. They played 12 guys yesterday, double-digit minutes. 12! <laughs> Just crazy stuff that Vinny has had to watch here all the time. And so we wanted – I mean, this is – I got to say, uh, Vinny, of all the podcasts we've done, I think Chris is most excited about this one because he <laughs> loves talking about this topic, which is which – is, which is, tanking and what the hell the league does about this because this is one of the worst seasons I can remember for this where you have I mean roughly 10 teams in the league right now and there are very good players available in this draft potentially but roughly 10 teams that are just not trying at all right now and and, and the one team is trying is Brooklyn because they don't have their own pick but Chicago New York Orlando Atlanta Dallas, Memphis, which managed to lose 19 games in a row at one point. Phoenix, Sacramento. Who have currently lost 15 in a row, Phoenix. 15 in a row for Phoenix and traded their point guard earlier this season. And the Lakers have been kind of trying this year. But all of those other teams are tanking. What is your proposal? How do they stop this, Vinny? Okay, first off, guys, here, here's one thing you have to realize. When you're watching two bad teams engage in tanking matrimony, it's like <laughs> watching two very attractive women get close to kissing each other, except they're both your cousins. <laughs> it is absolutely painful and dreadful to watch. Now, I understand why some teams are doing it. You look at the draft class, you look at some of the teams that they have, and it's an understandable thing because sometimes the mandate comes from ownership. It probably comes, it can come from the top. You know, hey, Bring this cost-control DeAndre Ayton in. Bring this cost-control Luka Doncic in. Go get me the next superstar. I get that. 
So I have a proposal to end all this tanking. And I want to know what Ethan Skolnick thinks because Ethan is probably one of the smartest people I've been around covering the NBA. And Ethan, did, did, did the check clear? Yeah, it did. Well, Chris is smarter than Chris is smarter I'm gonna than edit me. This so. out. You might, yeah, I edit this out. But he's on this topic. He's much better than I am. So you should okay. probably direct it to him. But either of us will chime in. Okay, here is my solution to that guy. Seriously, you don't wait to the last game of the season. You wait to the 82 games to set the draft order or to set the lottery order. You do that midseason. You do it either at midseason or you do it at the trade deadline because the teams that are bad are going to be bad. And that way there's no incentive from basically January on for teams to tank. But the bad teams that are going to be bad and need the help, the order and the odds are already set. So you can go. We don't have to go with the facade of, you know, let's play the young guys. Let's do this, compromise the integrity of the game and everything else. If you're bad on January 15th, you're going to be bad on April 15th. All right. So there for me are any number of things that that you could do. I kind of like the idea. The problem is that if you tell everyone that we're setting it on this date, then we're just kind of getting these ridiculousness of playing Cristiano Felicio, you know, 28 minutes for the Chicago Bulls in December instead of April. And so you're basically saying that the games in the middle of the season don't matter as much, which you're free to make that argument. But I think that it just would only make this circus happen earlier rather than get rid of it. To me, I think it's a small window. I think it's a smaller window, Chris. Sure. Because it, at least early in the season, you're actually evaluating the players that you have because every team comes into the season like, okay, let's see what we got. We done made acquisitions. We have draft picks, blah, blah, blah. So the window for tanking, as opposed to it being 30 games, maybe it's 10 games, maybe 15 games at the most. But at least for 30 games, you're really actually trying to see what you have and how you can improve your team within the context of the season. Now, if you decide on you know December 15th, you know what? This team sucks. And we're going to change for the next month to try to secure this pick. Okay, fine. But and you can't stop that anyway, right? Yeah, and that, that I can kind of understand. To me, though, what you've seen this year... So it's below it's below the Lakers, right? So the Lakers are trying because, again, they don't own their pick. If they did own their pick, they would have done the exact same thing. And what we've seen in kind of the second half of the year, a little bit of a renaissance for the Lakers, although they've been struggling of late since Isaiah went out, we wouldn't have seen it because they would have just been right there too. And yet you look at the standing Chicago, they're actually eighth from bottom. And so they've actually done it the worst despite trying to do it the best in terms of in, in terms of they've been the worst of the bad. And so I guess to me, the thing that, that just needs to be scrapped entirely is the idea that Phoenix can throw their arms up Rocky Balboa style saying they triumph and we're the worst of the bad. And they, they, were, they out-tanked them all. They've lost 15 in a row. They fired their coach. And they're going to have the number one lottery odds at the end of all this. And whether you flatten the lottery odds, it to me, still adds the incentive of we don't want to be stuck in the middle. We don't want to be the Denver Nuggets who are seven games over 500. And although they kind of have some some budding superstars might not make the playoffs and have the 14th best lottery odds and can't improve their team. We don't want to be the Denver Nuggets. Well, what's the solution? Okay, so to me, you have to go radical, right? You have to go radical to solve this problem. Here's number one. You eliminate the draft, right? There's no draft. Whoa. We have free agency. <laughs> we have we have rookie free agency, right? And, and, the, and you know, they kind of do the sliding scale of maxes where depending on your service time, the max goes up. The rookie max would be 20% of the salary cap when the super max, I believe, is 35. So to me, you eliminate the draft it means you have to not only present yourself as a team that 
has a future, you have to be sort of a, a desirable destination. So if you're the worst team in the league, the best rookie might not want to go there, but also you have to have some salary cap in order to sign a player like this. The Golden State Warriors couldn't sign DeAndre Ayton because they don't have the cap space to do so. And so it, it kind of works both ways in that respect. So there is no lottery. There is no draft. It's just free agency for rookies. That is right. That is really... Do you know you are pissing off everybody from ESPN to uh, the M- Emperor David Stern to everybody <laughs> in between that that yeah. likes this racket. I don't disagree with you. I think it's a little bit uh what's the word I'm looking for? It's Dream. a little bit optimistic. It's a little uh-huh. crazy too. But <laughs> I, I I understand where you're coming from. I will say this. Don't you have to also worry about at that point agents really steering and controlling the process then sending their players to a golden state with a wink wink nod nod maybe i just think though if you're if you're a rookie coming into the league like you want to make as much money as you can so if there's a situation where i can make max money versus not make max money then or maybe you make it so that the bird rights don't kick in after a certain amount of i don't know however it is you want to sort of create a system where rookies are incentivized to go to the most desirable place that have the money to pay them so that 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 for me would be the best way and it would also kind of prevent something like brooklyn where brooklyn can't get good because they don't have draft picks for four years now that's their own incompetence but also it allows teams to sort of make have a willingness more to go for it and and it might ruin the trade market because picks really are the currency that trades are made right. on. But I just think that they have to figure out. I mean, the play-in tournament isn't a bad idea where even if you're the worst team in the league, you have a chance to make the playoffs via 1-16 through 16 play-in tournament. I don't think that's necessarily a bad idea. But to me, the solution can't just be we flatten the lottery out. Maybe you go 1-14. through 14, that, that might be the best way to do it is that yeah. every team has an equal chance to get the number one pick. or And you draw the lottery for all, for all 14 picks not just one, you know, sort of one through 14 or one through three, right? So flatten the lottery odds, get rid of the draft. These are things that have to be considered because the idea that I understand this is a business, right? And they want to have thriving teams in all 30 markets, but somebody's got to be bad. Somebody's got to be good. And the idea that we're going to try and fix this by rewarding teams for being bad, which is what this is, right? It's you're bad. Here's the best young, cheap player. It's just something that has to be totally rethought. Well, the thing about it is, you mentioned a couple things uh, the flattening the lottery odds which i've been in favor of but the problem with that is you're gonna have all these conspiracy theories on this because if you flatten the odds uh, i mean it's, it's like you know cleveland when they won what three what three times okay yes. orlando orlando uh when they kept winning the lottery but look at what you just uh, described cleveland and orlando might be the two least desirable markets in the league well i understand that but you know how the nba works and you know how <laughs> nba fans are there's gonna be an assumption uh you know there was certainly a, look, there was certainly an assumption that the uh the league was trying to take care of cleveland Cleveland, okay, after what happened with LeBron. So, so a lot of fans believe that. I mean, I'll always remember when that lottery happened, uh, the lottery that they ended up, you know, winning to get the Wiggins pick. And I remember being in the press room in Indiana, and I have a picture of the look on Brian Windhorst's face <laughs> when, the, when, they, when Cleveland won the lottery. It's literally Brian, and, and I can say this because Brian and I are friends and he's been on the podcast, but it, it's literally Brian looking up at the television with his hands pressed against his cheeks and his eyes wide open, like 
did that really just happen? It, it, it and, and, fr- I remember the picture. It looked like a child seeing Mickey Mouse for the first time. It did. It, it did. My, my, my daughter just got a Snow White doll, and that's what she looked like yesterday when she got one yesterday. And, and there's going to be, a, you know, there was a feeling at the time, maybe this will lead to LeBron coming back. And you know what? It led to LeBron coming back in part because that asset, that Wiggins right. pick, uh, was Kevin part Love. of Gavin and Kevin Love. I think, so, I think Bill Simmons said on television during halftime that the, the reason for his first half poor performance, LeBron's, was that the Cavs won the won the lottery. And I remember everyone at the time was like, that is a load of nonsense. And you know what? He was, me, right. I said he that. was right. I, I trashed him on Twitter about that, Chris, about how, <laughs> how could he write that? LeBron just had a bad half, you know, and, and then it ended up being that. But I think that's the problem with flattening it. You look at the play-in tournament. To me, that's somewhat interesting because here's the thing about it. If you had not play into the playoffs, but play for a tournament to play for a lottery pick to get higher in the lottery seating makes some sense in in this regard that it would force teams to at least develop some players that were useful to them during the season or else they wouldn't do very well in that particular tournament. Now, the problem with it, that the players may not be all that thrilled to participate in this because, of course, although they may want their team to get better, if they happen to be an older player on that particular team, they might look at the guy who's coming in as someone who's going to be replacing them anyway. So there's a lot to balance there. I don't think we solved anything, but we threw a bunch of these (laughs) out there and we we will pull these. We will pull these on Twitter and other places. The one crazy one that I didn't go for was relegation. That was the only one that, 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 that I left in my chamber. That's because you're a soccer guy. We'll get to that. But I, I, I don't I relegated to the G League. That's my idea. They, oh my goodness! Oh no! That that, that that would be great. All right. Well, let's get to the part two of the pod here. We'll work through this one a little more quickly. But the reason that all these teams are tanking is because we've seen that a rookie can make a huge difference for a franchise. So we wanted to go through this year's rookie class a little bit. And it always feels a little bit weird because Ben Simmons wasn't drafted this past year. But but obviously he's going to be in the rookie of the year debate. So let, let's talk about him a little too. And you've been close to a rookie up there in Chicago and Laurie Markkinen, who's had a very promising yes. rookie season. So let's go through some of these guys. I mean, first thing for you, Vinny, let's just start here. Uh, if we did it right now, who's your rookie of the year? Is it Simmons or is it Mitchell? Man, dude, I've been, flip, I literally flip flop every day and I guess I'm leaning towards Simmons, but I love Donovan Mitchell. Cause I feel like he's a complete, He's a complete ball player, not necessarily the way that people think of Ben Simmons is, but I think he's just a complete – he strikes me as a Dwayne Wade, like a young Dwayne Wade slash, you know, Joe Dumars, a younger Joe Dumars, a sweet jump shot, a complete offensive package, unselfish, a growing jumper. Like, I know I love Ben Simmons and everything that he's doing, but the fact that he can't shoot outside of five feet gives me pause into giving him rookie of the year. It makes the numbers incredible, but I wonder if I, I should be rewarding the total package as opposed to maybe some of the other things that Ben Simmons does. But it, it may be Simmons anyway, but Donovan Mitchell is impressing me. He may be to me. He may be the best player out of this whole entire draft class long term. You know, the thing about Mitchell and I know I don't like always basing things on the team result, but if that team makes the playoffs in the West after losing Gordon Hayward, Right. A- after trading after trading Rodney Hood during the season, I know Drake Crowder has played a lot better in Utah than he played in Cleveland this year. I mean, it's Gobert's return also and what he does to anchor the defense. But offensively, that team is so challenged beyond him. Like, I mean, uh, that team was challenged offensively last year with Hayward. Right. And they've gotten better offensively this year, and it's all because of Mitchell. So I, if they make the playoffs, I'm going to have to lean towards Donovan Mitchell there. But you look at the rest of this class, it's one of the most compelling classes we've seen in recent years even 
even with a couple of guys not doing what we expected, like, I mean, the first pick in the draft, for instance, like yeah. Markel Fultz, who's, who's yeah. just now kind of working his way into that rotation. Lonzo Ball, who, uh, you know, is averaging 10 points and seven rebounds, seven assists, which are remarkable numbers for, you know, a first year player, but shooting, you know, only 36 percent from the field. Uh, Jason Tatum, the way that he's fit in on a contending team is still shooting 48% from the field. Yes. 43% from 3-2. And then a couple of guys who are on bad teams, so they've gotten a lot of run, especially lately, in Josh Jackson and Darren Fox. But look, uh, it looks and like And Laurie Markkinen. Don't forget, uh, don't forget Vinny's Bulls. We're going to get to him because, look, I mean, you look at picking seventh, and again, this we're going to talk about this trade a little bit later, but picking seventh with the pick that was originally with Minnesota. But Jonathan Isaac has not been great for Orlando this year and, and has missed time. But to get Markin in at number seven, averaging 15 points a game, again, on a team that's tanking. But what have you seen from him? What do you project him as? Let me be this. In the interest of full disclosure, once they made the trade, I said, okay, go get Dennis Smith Jr. Because <laughs> that, that's the most important position in basketball as point guard. And you're talking about an explosive guy. Like, I was a Dennis Smith Jr. guy right in that moment. Like, in, in the shock of the trade, go get Dennis Smith Jr. And they picked Larry Marketing. And I got a call from a couple of Arizona guys that I'm really close with. And they were like, this kid can really play. And I'm like, what do you mean, like, he can really play? They were like, no, they're going to open it up for him. If the Bulls know how to use him, he can be rookie of the year. From summer league to maybe the second month of the season, he made one of the greatest, like, turnarounds because I didn't see this out of him. Like, he could shoot the ball, but he's doing so many other things. Like, he has a handle. He's getting some toughness. And the fact that he's playing on this team with all this nonsense going on, like all this tanking and everything else, and the fact that he can still put up, you know, 20-point games on occasion, he's going to be a 40% three-point shooter basically, I think, by next year. I don't know if he's the number one or number two option in the long term, but he's been very impressive. And he might not even make all-rookie first team. That's how impressive this rookie class is. I don't know if he or Lonzo Ball make the first team all rookie. Yeah, we have to look at that. Um, Benny, I'm just looking off the top of my head. Obviously, it's going to be Simmons. It's going to be Mitchell. It's going to be yep. Tatum. Those three are definite. Cool. Uh, Kuzma. And Kuzma, who, yeah, we haven't even gotten to him because he went so far down in the draft. But Kuzma is going to be there, too. You're right. That fifth guy could be a lot of different people right now. I mean, you mentioned Den- Dennis Smith Jr. is averaging over 15 a game. Now, Markin is leading all rookies in rebounding at seven and a half a game. But, you know, and, and even we have a couple, you know, we have a story down here in Miami. Now, he hasn't gotten the minutes of the others. But if you look on a permanent basis, what Bam Adebayo has done yes. this year, in any other year, he's a contender for first team all rookie. And, and certainly last year was a contend would have been a contender for first team all rookie. Um, this year, it's much more challenging. And you mentioned Kuzma. So, yeah, I mean, there are potential. I guess the question would be, guys, that I'd have for both of you is who, who do you see of this class is a franchise player who is, I mean, you mentioned, you don't know if Markinen is a one or two guy on a contender, but maybe he does could project that way. But of what you've seen so far, who, who can be a number one or two player on a contending team? Wow. I would say Mitchell Simmons, Tatum, and maybe Markinen. Marketing is the one I'm most curious about. Maybe it's because I'm trying not to have the Regency bias because I see him every day. But I think when you talk about franchise players, you're talking about guys who can get his own shot outside of the offense. To me, that that's an important thing in today's NBA because you have to be able to create your own offense. Does he have the handle? Does he have the ball skills enough to do it? If he can't do that, I don't know if he can be a franchise player. But does he have the franchise talent? Yeah, but those other guys... 
I definitely believe in. I don't count Ben Simmons as, as a rookie for, for this conversation because, I mean, obviously it's his second year in the league. I would say probably Donovan Mitchell for sure. And the fact that he's already kind of being that guy is insane for rookie. I mean, we were, you know, when we were down here in Miami in 0304, had a similar experience with Dwayne Wade. And I think this is, this is kind of reminiscent of those teams. A little bit more just because I don't think the Heat had anybody at that time who was kind of of the quality that Rudy Gobert is, particularly from a defensive point of view. But just to see what it's like in round one, can he have a moment like when Dwayne Wade beat New Orleans in, in, yeah. in, that, in that opening game of those playoffs? But I would say I agree with you on Tatum because I, I don't think we've seen the full breadth of Jason Tatum because he plays on a team where he's not the number one guy. And so I feel like at some point we're going to see Jason Tatum with his own team, right? They're really kind of on equal footing with Kyrie Irving. And that'll be really fascinating to see kind of where he kicks on from that point in his career. Or in New outs- Orleans. Oh, sorry. Did I say, did I say that out loud? <laughs> you did. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah. Maybe, maybe as soon as next year. We'll see. Right. <laughs> wow. I, I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah, that would actually be fascinating if, uh, if if he was running the Pelicans or, you know, maybe New Orleans isn't even isn't even in New Orleans. How about that? But, uh, yeah, I would say outside of that, you see a lot of rookies playing for bad teams. Like, uh, how can you possibly learn, learn anything about what Josh Jackson is doing, you know, the efficiency or lack thereof of that? Kuzma and Ball, to me, on, on the Lakers are, are kind of interesting propositions. And who knows if they'll be there next year, if maybe they're kind of flipped to bring LeBron help. But uh, I, I think that right now we know for for a fact that Mitchell and Tatum are franchise guys. All right, now let's take a quick break. Hi, I'm the English guy, and I want to tell you about the Three Yards Per Carry podcast I co-present with my friends, Alf. Hello. And Chris. Hey. Each week, we get together to deconstruct the Miami Dolphins. Gossip, analysis, and insider chat, all inside a fun 45 minutes. And here's a little taste. So guys, a bit of word association for you. The Marino. Goat. Goat. <laughs> Tom Brady. Ugh. Pansy. Ryan Tannehill. Dreamy. Vanilla. Baker Mayfield. God. Balls. Michael Bolton. No, no, wait. Don't answer that. The Three Yards Per Carry podcast out every Thursday. Plenty of Miami Dolphins chat. Uh, Not so much Michael Bolton. All right, we're going to get to number three here. The big story in the offseason beyond the draft and free agency were the trades that were made. We mentioned this a little bit earlier. There were two major trades that were made in the NBA. And I, at the time, both because there were star players that were traded and those stars were supposed to be traded for a long time, the initial reaction from a lot of people was to say that the team that got the star won the trade. And the two trades I'm talking about were Jimmy Butler going to Minnesota and Paul George going to Oklahoma City. Now we're at the stage of the season where we can look at this a little bit. Jimmy Butler, who I know you know quite well, uh, Mm -hmm. covering him in Chicago, Vinny, uh, has had a great season with Minnesota, at least before he got injured. So no question about what he's provided to the Timberwolves. Paul George has had a very good season with Oklahoma City. A little uneven at times, but but a very good season. But if you look at it right now, let's look before we get to your Bulls here in a second. Let's look at the OKC Indiana trade. If you look at it right now as we're doing this podcast, Oklahoma City is 45 and 33. Indiana is 46 and 31. The Pacers have a better record right now than the Thunder do. And the Pacers in that trade got Sabonis and they got Oladipo and it was widely panned from what I remember yes. at the time of the trade. How do we look back on that trade now? We can't say that Indiana fleeced them because we certainly did. Nobody knew that Victor Oladipo would escape from Alcatraz when he Russell Russell Westbrook and and all of a sudden <laughs> turn into the player who was the second pick in the draft a few years ago. I think it's more 
I would say it's more of an indictment to me. It's more of an indictment on Russell Westbrook than it is on the Oklahoma City franchise. Because I think Paul George is going to walk at the end of the year anyway. So Indiana got the most that they could get, and we killed Indiana. I know I did. I said, even if he wanted to engineer a trade to the Lakers, I said, look, if you're going to trade him, just trade him to the Lakers. I wouldn't even worry about it. But now that you have Victor Oladipo, a guy who wants to be there, who's locked up for a number of years, and who seems like the type of guy who fits playing in Indianapolis with that small market team, you can't say that they don't have a bright enough future over there. And you can't say that Oklahoma City doesn't have the murky future. They have a murky present. And Put it like this, guys. I wasn't someone who was on the Russell Westbrook train last year of, of triple doubles, the the Susan Lucci tour, uh, as I like to call him, because everybody felt so sorry for him that Kevin Durant left as if he wasn't the reason that Kevin Durant got the hell out of town. And now I think you're seeing exactly why good players go over there and they're not able to actually thrive because Russell Westbrook takes up all the air. So I think whether that's Oklahoma City or whether that's Russell Westbrook, I think you're seeing, to me, that's the biggest observation of that trade rather than an indictment of one franchise or another. I think for me, the, the bigger mistake that Oklahoma City made was getting rid of uh, you know the, the, the players that they did to go and get Carmelo because Carmelo, for me, has been a pretty significant disaster in Oklahoma City. And I think he kind of... We talk all the time about players kind of aging before your eyes and it happening one day to the next. I think it's happened with Carmelo almost instantaneously. And for me, I think you saw Indiana, if you had... Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details just done Oladipo for George and you're just going like for like, then I think Oklahoma City would have just carried on and been about the same as you were a year ago. But they basically have gotten rid of the entire core of their team. And I think what we've seen in the NBA the last few years is, yes, obviously you can't win without superstar talents, but they have to be superstar talents that make sense together. And they have to be, you still have to have a decent enough team around them. And I think what Indiana did was add Oladipo and Sabonis, two guys, to not a great team, but a somewhat decent Cord that was at least good enough to, with Paul George, make the playoffs. And by virtue of Oladipo making that leap with Miles Turner, kind of, you know, his sidekick in that effort, I think have kind of become a really solid team that I, I, I watched them against the Heat. And I think a lot of people just kind of look for statistical reasons or this deeper meaning as to why Indiana has emerged. They just play really good basketball and they play, they make sense as a unit. And I think that's what Oklahoma City is lacking is they don't make sense as a combination. And you just watch them, it's kind of a your turn my turn thing they were never games that sort of melded well together to me the amazing thing is that Indiana right now is sitting on a better record albeit in the east with a better record than Oklahoma City so you'd have to say if we're analyzing the trade Indiana did better Ethan, what say you, my friend? I panned it at first, too. I think everybody else did. I mean, and and I felt for Kevin Pritchard because he was put in that situation. And, you know, again, Larry Bird kind of steps aside and they never really Mm -hmm. resolved it correctly with Paul George. They didn't read the signs clearly enough. I think during the season, I think they were still hopeful that they could convince him to stay long term. And so I I was not thrilled with the value that they got on that particular deal at the time. And and remember, again, those guys, you know, Sabonis and Oladipo were both in Orlando together. 
that were part they were part of the Ibaka trade. So they'd already been shipped once already. And it didn't look for Oklahoma City like that had worked out all that well, because, again, as you said, Oladipo didn't fit that well next to Westbrook. So I had kind of pigeonholed Oladipo as a guy who'd be sort of a nice third or fourth piece on a team. I, I didn't view him as somebody you were going to be able to build your team around. But clearly the Pacers have done that. I think you'd have to say right now, I mean, the Pacers won that trade by far. I don't think there's any question because, again, you look at Paul George's future. If Paul George ends up in L.A., then where are you as Oklahoma City? You've got Westbrook signed to a long-term deal, but a couple of the young pieces that you brought in aren't there anymore. They're going to have to totally redo that thing. I don't know if Billy Donovan survives. I mean, Sam Presti's got a lot of work to do with the Thunder. So clearly they won the trade. Let's look at the other one because at the time that this trade was made, which was on draft night, there were similar feelings, I think, around the league as the Oklahoma City-Indiana trade, which was which is that the Bulls were giving up, you know, on Jimmy Butler and and bringing in, you know, three players, one by draft pick that ended up becoming marketing, but two guys, uh, one in Chris Dunn, who didn't show a ton in his rookie season with Minnesota and another guy in Zach Levine, who was coming off an ACL injury when his best attribute is his athleticism. Now, you've gotten a chance to see Dunn and Levine. I know Levine missed some time this year. How do you feel? Because uh, I know, you know, Gar Packs in Chicago, they sometimes don't get the best rep uh, <laughs> up there. Uh, but but it looks to me on the surface like they also did about as well as they could for Jimmy Butler. Well, here's the thing. The one big reason that I panned it in relation to the Paul George trade, everybody knew Paul George wanted out and where he wanted to go. And he was going to be up after one season. Jimmy Butler had another season left on his contract. And he made it clear he wanted to stay in Chicago. It wasn't like a player ready to leave small market for bigger market and you got to trade and get something for him. It was franchise giving up on player, not player giving up on small market franchise. And I think people tend to forget that when you have a you know a 30,000 foot view of it and think that they look the same. Now, when you look at Levine, marketing and Dunn, A, it helps that I can't even remember the guy who uh, the Timberwolves took at 16 that the Bulls drafted and then traded because they swapped picks from, from 7 to 15. So basically it's like a one for three deal. I think it was and Justin Patton, right? From Justin, Patton, Justin Patton. Yeah, yeah. Justin Patton, who spent more time in the G League than he has on the big team. And part of that is tips and everything else. But you look at it as a one for three type of trade. Marketing, as we just talked about. Levine, I think we still don't know because the first year of ACL is basically a wash. Like, you don't know what you're watching. The problem with that is if you didn't want to pay Jimmy Butler $200 million next season, what happens when you have to pay Zach Levine $100 million this summer with even less certainty on what you're going to get on the return on that? Are you sure See, they're going to have to? Are you sure they're going to have to? Well, here's the thing. The, the optics of it. For me, the Bulls do things. It appears the Bulls do things on optics. Jimmy Butler was elevated in part because of the Derrick Rose stuff. Jimmy Butler was traded in part because Jimmy Butler's mouth got too big. And then the next thing is, okay, now you bring in these guys because you want to trade Jimmy Butler. So I wonder does one thing begat another begat another. So you can't trade for Zach Levine, say he's your future, and then not pay him or let him go on a qualifying offer. I think that would be disastrous. But I don't know what type of offer he, he's going to get. I know the Bulls aren't just going to toss him five and a hundred million dollars just because. Here's, here's how the Bulls want you to evaluate the trade. They want you to not only take their picks that they got from the selections that they got from Levine, Dunn, and Markkinen. They also want you to look at it from the draft pick they're going to get this year. Maybe the draft pick they're going to get next year. To basically, like, the control the narrative of, say, we traded Jimmy Butler, and because we get bad, 
we get all of these subsequent picks from being bad. If maybe if I were in their position, I would try to put that out there too. But I will say that their future is much more murky than people realize because they're even though individually they're good players and you said something Chris a couple of moments ago a lot of times it's less about individual talent and more about fit how do these guys fit together what type of team building comes around it because individually Dunn has been productive Levine has had moments marketing has been a revelation and that's all well and good but they're still a 25 win team and they're no closer to making the playoffs than we thought they were at the beginning of the season when we didn't know anything about any of these guys so I think long term you have to look at it a little bit differently because at least Indiana is close to being a 50-win team. Chicago has bought one half of that. And even if they get DeAndre Ayton, even if they get Luka Doncic, it doesn't guarantee you anything. Like, you can look at the Washington Wizards. They got John Wall right in the draft. They got Bradley Beal right in the draft. They got Otto Porter right in the draft. And look at where they are. They're going to be also Rams in two years because Boston and Philly – are going to elevate themselves with super, superstar talent, and Washington is basically going to have the glass ceiling. All right, let's move uh, to the next part, part four of this. Over the weekend, guys, uh, the Hall of Fame class was announced, and this is an interesting class. And, and the Basketball Hall of Fame can be a little bit confusing because it's not an NBA Hall of Fame. It takes into account everything else that goes uh, with a person's career, their college play, their international play. There are women in the Hall of Fame. There are contributors in the Hall of Fame. It's just a totally different exercise than, say, the Pro Football Hall of Fame is. But even so, this is a really uh, compelling class. And I'm going to put Mo Cheeks aside because he's part of a, a different era. We can have an argument about whether he was really a great player or just a very good one who sort of got in based on longevity. But the four other guys that got in that I wanted to talk about here, and I wanted to pose this question to you, Vinny, because this is a tough one, and I struggled with this. Grant Hill, Ray Allen, Jason Kidd, and Steve Nash. Four guys from the most recent era of NBA basketball. Which of those four guys, Hill, Allen, Kidd, or Nash, was the best at the peak of their career? Okay. And this is not Regency bias as someone who grew up in Detroit. But I saw Grant Hill. He probably, maybe because he had the quickest start and he was second in MVP voting and he made a trash Detroit team in a very loaded Eastern Conference win 54, 55 games, his second, third year in the league. I, I, I wonder if Grant Hill gets cheated by, gets cheated not only by the injury, but cheated by time in that way because he was everything LeBron James was except being the physical specimen. He was every bit, you know, maybe not as great of a passer, but every bit the instinct. He scored as well as anybody. He got rebounds. He did everything that to impact the game, even outside of the statistics. Like he was a walking triple-double, but it wasn't like a numbers triple-double. It was an effect, like I have to carry this team for us to get wins. And I think people kind of forget how really, really good and great Grant Hill was. And you can certainly make the argument for Jason Kidd turning around franchises when he got there. And you can make the argument for Steve Nash basically ushering in an era. Like I won't argue with you on either of those guys, but I wonder if Grant Hill at his height, I think in 97, I want to say he finished third in MVP voting behind Carl Malone, one of the most fraudulent winners ever, and Michael Jordan, the greatest player of all time. Like, I don't know if Steve Nash at his best, if you take 05 and put it in 97, if he even places. Yeah, to me, it's a really interesting argument because of, again, what Grant Hill didn't end up uh, becoming. And you mentioned the 98-99 season. In 99-2000, 
he averaged 25-8 with six rebounds and five assists. And he was dynamic at that stage. He was 27 years old and then he hurts the ankle and I covered that series uh, between the between the Pistons and the Heat and it was clear that Grant should not have played. Tim Hardaway was out for that series. Anthony Carter ended up starting at point guard for the Heat. The Heat swept the series in three games and Grant never should have been on the floor. But you look at uh, what I give Grant enormous credit for is he was never anything close to the same player again even though Orlando signed him to that mega contract along with McGrady that offseason. He missed an entire season in 0304. But somehow he ended up in the later stages of his career at 36, 37 and 38 years old. He played 82, 81 and 80 games for Phoenix. Well, it's just just I, when you consider what happened to the middle seven or eight years of his career to become a guy who played every game in his late 30s over a three year span uh, is really amazing. But, yeah, I think if he had had one or two more years, you know, I look at him in a way like I look at McGrady, like I look at Penny, like I look to a certain extent at Zoe. They all just got taken down around the same time. McGrady was a little bit later, but around the same time at sort of the peak of their powers. And if he had and you mentioned LeBron, LeBron talks about Grand Hill as one of those, you know, triple threat players that he looked up to along with Pippen and Penny. So clearly up there. But as much as Kidd changed the Nets franchise and as much as Ray Allen, as you mentioned, he was, you know, a, a dominant scorer uh, when he was with, you know, particularly Milwaukee, that team that got to the, the Eastern finals. I'm probably going to go with Nash because he was the engine of those teams in Phoenix that was uh, storming the league at that point. But it's, it's, a, it's a challenging argument. Before we move on to the next one, just real quick, before we go to our lightning round, should Chris Webber be part of this class? Vinny? Yes, 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 yes. And the college stuff, I get it. The interpersonal stuff, I get it. But when you look at it, 2010-5 and five for his career, he turned around the Washington Bullets. He turned around the Golden State Warriors. He made the Sacramento Kings a contender that they've never been before since. Like, I don't think that there should be as much of an argument. From a physical standpoint, I can't think of, maybe from a talent standpoint, I can't think of a more talented power forward to play in this league from a like a versatility standpoint. Maybe not the shooter of Rasheed Wallace, maybe not the polished post player of Tim Duncan, but everything else from a passing, defense, rebounding, you know, everything that he could do. I don't see why he's not there. I think it's a travesty he is. All right, let's move on to part five here of our podcast. We're going to do this lightning round with you guys. I'm just going to go to you guys real quickly, and then I'll okay. chime in. All right, so we got five parts to this thing. How does the situation with Kawhi Leonard and the Spurs play out, Vinny? I think they wind up trading them. Because it sounds like that they're not going to offer him the max contract that he wants, that, that 5 and 219. Like they're trying to set it up so he that he takes less. I don't think he wants to take less. And I think they're going to have to wind up trading him. And I think because they're trying to put their Spurs way on him, and he's not going for it. How does the Spurs way not work for the most Spurs player ever? That, like, that for me is the part that is so hard to comprehend, is that you look at his performances in the finals that we saw with those two seven with well I was the seven game series in 13 and then the five game series in 14 I don't know how it's possible that that guy who was such a perfect spur who doesn't want any spotlight who doesn't want any anything we haven't heard from him in any of this how is it so dramatically changed that he doesn't want to be part of that organization anymore I think even still even with everything that's happened in public which is another surprising one that they've had to deal with the public controversy I still think he's going to stay a spur yeah Are we I sure would... he wants to stay there 
Well, that's a good question. I don't know. But I, the, but the thing is, if he wants to hide from the spotlight, that's the place to do it. Him going to another place, like if he's going to be LeBron's sidekick, that's another story because he can kind of try to fade into the shadow there a little bit. But he's going to be the best player on, on virtually any team he goes to, right? Unless he goes to, I don't know, we could argue about this, Milwaukee, right? Or if he went uh, to Philly. Well, if you went to Philly, there, there are three guys there who all could be considered the best player. And Embiid certainly would take all the, uh, you know, the public bullets in that way. But, um, if, but, so, but if it's going to be a trade, like who has enough to get Kawhi Leonard? Like if you're the Spurs, you'd have to be totally blown away by any offer. What if the Celtics go for him? I mean, I guess, I mean, I guess him and Hayward would be would be difficult together. But I, I, who could have enough to trade where the where the Spurs would be okay giving up their franchise asset, one of the great players in the NBA, who we know for a fact is good enough to win you a championship one of the few guys that you can say that about who could potentially put together an offer that's good enough i'm not sure I'm, but I, I can say miami probably thinks they can right so let's that's a good way to trade that's a good way to transition how about james johnson and hassan whiteside in the uh, see how see how that works out i'm sure some heat fans are going to propose that all right let's get to part two here we did a whole pod on this the other day but just quickly your thoughts on this what should the heat do with hassan whiteside Vinny? does he fit in the modern nba or they should they try to move him i wonder if he does fit and especially not if you have bam who's a little more versatile you know at, at you know foot speed and everything you know what i'm saying and, and sort of a changing game i wonder if hassan Whiteside, like an andre Drummond, maybe drums a little more nimble you know on his feet as far as you know jumping out in the perimeter and everything else but man it's the league moves quickly doesn't it i feel like the league has moved so fast over the over the past six or seven years that it's made so many transitions a guy like Whiteside would be so coveted and now he's almost like viewed as a liability because you're not sure exactly how he fits in the construct of small ball so i I wonder if the Heat are going to try to get in front of that this summer. Yeah, and that for me is the one thing that the Heat can be criticized. They can be criticized on a lot of things when it comes to Whiteside, but for me, the one thing they can be criticized the most on is a lack of foresight. Because even in 2016, we kind of knew that the league was moving away from this. The Warriors and the Cavs had just played their final. yeah, that, that would have been the year that the Cavs and the Warriors played in the finals, and it got smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And the Heat still, even though I can understand not wanting to let the asset go, doubled down and paid $98 million to a center who can't shoot. And that, for me, is the biggest point that they can be hit on, is that we kind of knew that the league was moving away from Whiteside, and the Heat went and signed him anyway. All right, let's get to part three here of our lightning round uh, portion here. You spent a lot of time around Stan Van Gundy when you were covering the Pistons. He makes the big trade for Blake Griffin. They are going to miss the playoffs anyway. What happens this offseason with Stan? Does he remain the coach? Does he keep his front office role? What do the Pistons do? The tricky thing is now Reggie Jackson has come back. And the games he's played in, they're 25 and 15. How do you compartmentalize that with the season that they've had? Now, on one hand, you can say you're 25 and 15 with Reggie Jackson. You got Blake Griffin. You've got a quote-unquote big three of sorts. On the other hand, you just said the word foresight. Reggie Jackson got hurt because Reggie Jackson always gets hurt. So if you go into the season knowing that you had to have Reggie insurance. So I wonder if the ownership is going to look at that and say, you can't bank on that because you knew Reggie was going to get hurt. And if we bring you back, Reggie's going to get hurt next year too. So you better have a long-term plan. I wonder if the, if the coach president model is just dead in the NBA. And I wonder if the Pistons realize that or if they believe that and they're going to say, Stan, you can coach out your last year and we'll figure something out 
on the front office end? Because it's, to me, it's not just this year. It's about what are you going to do going forward with Stan Van Gundy or what does Stan Van Gundy want to do even after next year? That's the part that I'm curious about because if you have him in a walk year this year and he's basically a lame duck, does that hurt your potential for future moving forward because you're going to have to address the same thing this time next season? For me, the thing that is the biggest flaw that I, I didn't even see coming when it came to the coach president is what happens when you put that guy in a situation where if he doesn't achieve a benchmark, he can get fired. And that, for me, is the biggest thing that, I mean, you've seen it in, in some respects in New Orleans. Now, it kind of worked with the trade for Boogie Cousins, and it's it's kind of been okay in terms of how all that has transpired and Del Dem still has his job. But you see too often executives or coaches, when they get into desperate situations, they make desperate moves. And I feel like an organization has to put it upon themselves. The owner has to be the one that says, I'm not going to let any one individual ruin my future because they think they're going to get fired. If they're already making decisions like they're going to get fired, I just need to fire them now. And that for me is the thing that Detroit and Stan Van Gundy did with the Blake Griffin trade. It was one last Hail Mary to sell tickets, to try and make the playoffs. It didn't work. And now you're staring down the barrel of four years of paying Blake Griffin a ton of money. And so to me, that that is the danger in keeping Stan Van Gundy any longer is he's just going to try and do this again in this offseason. Blake Griffin, by the way, in 2021-22 has an <laughs> option at $38.9 million. Let's move to the next part quickly. Yes or no, LeBron James has a case that he should be the MVP this season. He always has a case he should be MVP this season. But I, here's, here's the thing. If LeBron is the biggest piece in Cleveland and Cleveland has underachieved from a record standpoint, I don't see how you can't award the guy who has the greatest effect on a team on an underachieving team. Whether that's Isaiah Thomas not fitting in, whether that's Dwayne Wade and some of those guys not fitting in, whether it's even some of the newer additions not fitting in, how much country can you give the best player in the game for not making those pieces fit in your third in the Eastern Conference and the Eastern Conference is not very good like I don't see how we can award that when we're supposed to be awarding effect on a winning team so to speak as opposed to best player but he does have the case because he's the best player in the game yeah, and Cleveland, by the way, 28th in the league on defense. So I feel like that above almost anything else is the reason why uh, he, he'll, he probably won't win the MVP. Also, like you said, Vinny, I mean, it's not just that Houston's better. Cleveland has 15 more losses. And you can say that, you know, he has Chris Paul and a really good system or whatever, but I don't think if you go sort of three through 15, uh, I mean, Houston is good and they're better. They're not that much better. They don't have, they're not the golden state warriors that have sort of four incredible players, which is why no one of them is going to win the MVP. I mean, there's a reason why James Harden is the front runner in this way, in this race, but I do think we do. And and I asked Tim Bontemps this, and it very often comes down to his point was it's about this season. I agree. James Harden's had a better season, but there has to be, some kind of like WWE title belt that we get that we sort of give to whoever in the league is the best player and LeBron we don't have well, wait, why, do, why do we have to do this to just make sure that we appease LeBron no but like but it, it is worth noting at least that it, the MVP is kind of meant to be who is the best player in that season or is it who had the best season because I, I do feel like those are two separate questions and if all this time LeBron has been the best player then there should be something in the record right something that you know in, in the know. course of history that we remember we know, uh, we know. understood that's but what it is. Chris, we know. Chris every day he 
breaks three records these days, right? Like it's 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 Michael Jordan's scoring streak. It's I mean every day it's something else. Michael Jordan won League MVP five times and should have won it at least six. Okay, right? like yes. I mean, right? Yes. You, 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 right? You mentioned the Carl Malone one, but five time right. MVP. Every year that he was in his prime, he was the best player in the league. Shouldn't there be something in the record that reflects that? We know. Here's the thing: because we watch basketball, we know that it's one thing if if LeBron has won. What about sixty LeBron- years from now? What about sixty years from now when they look back at you know at the Michael Jordan era, and it's going to have to be like you know eighty five year old me going, oh, Michael Jordan was the best <laughs> player in the nineties. No, there's got to be something that stands the test of time, guys. LeBron's going to tweet out a title belt. Don't worry about it. It'll be. Oh, a, it'll- tr- trust me. He- he, he's going to do something to let every to let everybody, everybody know. know. It, it, I got it, no problem with it. I, I it, really don't. Like Aaron Rodgers is the greatest quarterback I've ever seen. He's won two MVPs. Is he being shortchanged because Matt Ryan had an unbelievable year, or Tom Brady is whatever you know on Super Water that he's on and had a great year last year? Like sometimes you just know you don't necessarily need the right. you know Super Water. Holiday. Super I, Water. I, I, I like that. That's a euphemism. All right, I, 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 I still want the best player in the league WWE title belt that we give out every year. <laughs> I'm telling you, LeBron's going to put that on Instagram. All right, we'll go to uh, we'll go to our last one here, and we'll make this one quick because we, we asked Tim Bontemps about this. And oh my and, God, you asked Tim Bontemps something? Oh, and, 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 and he uh, he he shot this one down pretty quickly. But are the Warriors in any danger, Vinny? Yes. They're in danger. They're in danger because the years and years of playoff basketball are starting to catch up with them. They're in danger because Houston has four players when the shot clock runs down that can get their own shot against any type of defense. To me, I don't care how good you are. Sometimes there's no defense for four guys on the floor with five seconds or less on the shot clock who can get a great shot and a seven game on your home floor. They're in danger. I don't know if they lose, but they're in danger. I agree. And I think the Houston Rockets this season have kind of provided. Now, they're going to need Chris Paul healthy. And that, for me, is at least a slight concern going forward as he's had multiple periods of the season where he's missed games. So as much as we are concerned about Steph Curry being out for round one and he's, he's going to be 100% because we saw it two years ago in the playoffs that, yes, he came back from the injury, but he was never 100%. Uh, is Chris Paul going to be 100% when it comes down to these big games? Because I, I don't think that the, that, that the Rockets can beat the Warriors without healthy Chris Paul. But if they do have healthy Chris Paul, I'd absolutely give them a chance. And it's kind of incredible that we're only two years into Kevin Durant being on already the best regular season team ever, and we already have a real question, a real narrative that I don't think we're wishing into existence. I think it's real. Yeah, I think there's a chance, too. All right, so Vinny Goodwill, your first uh, time with us here on the pod. We appreciate you taking the time. Again, you can follow him at The Goodwill. You can follow us at Five Reasons Pod. We are also at Chris Whittingham and at Ethan J. Skolnick. Look for the other episodes in our library. Tell your friends, subscribe, share, and rate. That helps us get into better position, which helps us expand the podcast. Thanks again for your time, and we'll talk to you soon. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.